almost the entirety of the 12th chapter of Luke, contains some of Jesus' richest teaching on possessions and money. We have a young man that wants the inheritance divided up. Jesus said, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. We have uh, a parable of a rich fool whose life is required of him that night. We have Jesus pointing us to lilies of the fields and birds of the air who don't worry about how they are going to be adorned or fed. And uh, we're going to look at all of those, but for our text this morning, to save some time, a part of the chapter that is not as frequently focused on, let's look at verses 32 and following. This is God's Word. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, what you have and give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. The earliest name for Christianity was the way. These next few weeks we are looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple or walker of the way, how it is we are to practice our faith. Uh, You have an insert in your bulletin about that, and thanks to Bryce Butler, who this evening will be leading us in quiet times, and also Stephen Reynolds and Stephen Aoki in the evenings will be part of this series on practicing the faith. But today... This morning we look at one of Jesus' actually most favorite themes, stewardship. Regularly when this theme is approached, when I approach this theme, we do it in the broadest possible way, appropriately so. How we are to handle the gift of our life, our resources, our time, our talents. I wish all of you could have been here Wednesday night, and you could have been. For our uh, devotional that Beth Singleton led us in from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, that we are not our own. We are bought for, purchased for the price. We are the temple of God, the temple of God's own spirit. We can't do what we want to do with our bodies. We are his. We are bought with a great price. This morning, though, I want to take a more targeted topic. Jesus isn't afraid to, and the text demands it. Jesus talks in this text and throughout this chapter about money. The broader context starts, as I've already alluded, with a young man who comes and asks Jesus to tell his brother to divide up the inheritance. Evidently, this is a younger brother. And the older brother has probably, we may infer, inherited everything from the parents and has not divided it with this sibling and perhaps other siblings. Jesus knows that this family is being torn apart, and he knows why. It's being torn apart by a sickness, a money centrality, a materialistic heart. Maybe the problem is in this young brother. Maybe it's in the older brother. I don't know. The point is that Jesus says coming to a saving relationship with him 
demands that you come to a different relationship with all of your possessions and money in particular. Jesus says, and this is the interesting part of the story for me, watch out, be on guard, be careful, beware of covetousness. Jesus is targeting covetousness as a spiritual cancer. It doesn't necessarily come from money. Uh, the Bible is replete with people of wealth, Job, Abraham, who apparently did not have this sickness. And you can have very few possessions, very little money, and have money sickness. But whatever your station in life, Jesus is saying, beware, be on guard, look out. I found the, the form of that itself interesting. Jesus does not say anywhere that I know, be on guard. Be careful about sloth and gluttony. Be on guard. Watch out for adultery. Now, I think he puts it this way, not that adultery is any less destructive than covetousness. I think what we can see in here is that greed is more deceptive than other sins. By and large, we can monitor ourselves and we know whatever we do, if we are being lustful or uh, slothful, that there's something deceptive about covetousness. Nobody who's greedy feels they're greedy. I just feel I'm needy. The assumption Jesus seems to be making here is that greed is something that's hidden, that's something that will deceive. It's something that will fool. Jesus is assuming a character of hiddenness in our covetousness. Blindness is a condition of it. That's why he has to say, watch out, be on guard, look out for it. We know that materialism and consumerism exist, but not in me. It's out there, it's somewhere else, it's not true of me. If Jesus knew he had to say even this kind of admonition to his own culture in his own time, how much more must it be true of the kind of world we live in today? Note how practical Jesus was being here. To watch out, to be on guard and beware, means to ask questions. Who's going there? What's that noise? Who's out there? Jesus is saying, don't trust yourself with money. Ply yourself with questions. Be on guard. Is God honored through this? Do I need this? How could I be generous with what I have? What needs would give honor to God by my giving? What can I give away? If you don't, if we don't, we're being voluntarily blind. Beware of money blindness. He's saying. Then verse 32 gives a second kind of command. It's a different one. If we're to be on guard on one hand, we are not to fear on another. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Right after a parable of a fellow who's obviously greedy, who hordes and gorges, and that night his life is required of him. He's looking for money for his security. Jesus tells a story about birds of the air and lilies of the field. 
Jesus is saying that there is a way of worrying about money that dishonors him. I don't think he means here being responsible. I don't think he means here an appropriate care for family or to profession or provide a home or provisions for family. But there is a way of worrying that shows we are inordinately preoccupied by our possessions. We are thinking about food, about clothing, about our status, about our living standard. Jesus said, you've set your heart. That's his phrase. You've set your heart on material things just as much as any overtly greedy person. When you have things, you gloat. When you don't have things, or enough you think, you worry. And both are problems. What Jesus seems to be saying is be careful. It's possible to have money and not have the sickness, but it's also possible to not have money or not have much and also have the sickness. He even says it overtly in verse 29. He says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. To worry about it is to be just as materialistic and blind and absorbed and money-centric as those who look for money in their security and who have it and who gloat in it. Um, I think what Jesus is doing throughout this chapter and its places in it is brilliant. What he is doing is saying that the real question, perhaps, is where do you draw the line? Everybody knows there's a problem with greed. There's a problem with consumerism. There's a problem with materialism. But at least our tendency is to draw the line for where that exists as far away from myself as I possibly can. Jesus is challenging us to draw the line close. Jesus gives us several diagnostic symptoms. First in verse 19, he says the rich fool is gloating. You have plenty. Take life easy. Bigger barns, bigger homes. He's gloating. The other symptom we've already seen is worry. Consider ravens. They're secure even though they don't have any money because God makes them secure. Consider the lilies. They're beautiful even though they don't have any money because God arrays them in beauty. Earl Ellis has written a commentary on Luke and he says this about the rich fool. He says he thought he was an owner, but he found he was owned. He thought he was in control, but he didn't have control. He thought he was an owner, but he found out he was a tenant spiritually. Spiritually a tenant. I love that phrase. One of the reasons we might worry about money, why we have trouble giving it away radically, is that we're looking to it for our security. It's a deception. If I have money, we say to ourselves, I can be immune the dangers of life. <laughs> That's absolutely stupid. On the other hand, there are people who look to money not as their security, but as their beauty, their sense of worth. They're not like the ravens. They're like lilies. Jesus says only God can make you secure and only God can array you. Only God can make you beautiful. Only God secures you, and only God arrays you. Some years ago, a Ted Danson and Jack Lemmon made a movie together called 
dads. And uh, in that movie, the son asked the father, why did you leave mom and me? Why did you divorce us? Why did you leave us? And uh, at first, the father says she was jealous of my career. She got in my way. And then finally, Jack Lemmon looks down, he looks at the ground and he says, making money made me feel like a man. So the psychological symptoms of this sickness is it can make us gloat or make us worry. It can make us save in a Scrooge-like fashion or it can make us spend to make us feel worthwhile. What's the remedy? What's the way out? What's the solution? What's the medicine? Clearly, it's some kind of transformation. It's some kind of new identity. It's some kind of new figuration of who we are in the world. One of my two favorite movies of recent years, the first, of course, being Les Miserables, was the Academy Award-winning film The King's Speech. In it, uh, the young heir to the throne, who was known as a boy, as Bertie, who became King George II, the sixth, King of England during World War II, had a terrible problem of stuttering. His unsympathetic father said, Enunciate! He would shout at him. And at one time, after he has given a speech, the father, he shoves young Bertie before the microphone. He says, Actually, he wasn't as young at this time. He's a man. But he's stuttering. He's had a terrible time of speech. And the king father says, Sit up, straight back. Face boldly up to the bloody thing and stare it square in the eye like you would any Englishman. Show who's in command. And of course, that doesn't help at all. <laughs> so George Sixth, chief cheerleader, his uh, wonderful wife Elizabeth goes and takes her husband to every uh, specialist that is, is recognized by the nobility in all of London to no avail. Some are mechanics and some are intellectualists, but finally, uh, as a last resolve, she looks among the commoners and she finds a rather idiosyncratic, rumpled character by the name of Lionel Logue, who she takes her husband to. Uh, and uh, he's, of course, startled when he discovers this is uh, the Duke and uh, the although he's the younger brother because of kind of the waywardness the, 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 of his older brother, the, the weight of the throne is looming on, on Bertie as well. And when he agrees to accept him, he knows that they're going to have to be on equal terms in therapy. And he says, uh, to establish that, he says, my castle, my rules. And he knows that he needs to probe into Bertie's heart, his life, this is going to be a psycho-kinesthetic problem that at its root is going to be coming to a new identity. And so he asks him when his stuttering started and Bertie responds, well, I've always had it. And Logue says, no, uh, children don't start out with a stutter. And throughout the times together, he presses and presses and presses. And finally, he comes to a 
a breakthrough when he asked who he was closest to, and perhaps unsurprisingly, he says, not to his mother and father, but to his nannies. But then he said, not my first nanny. He remembers, painfully, she loved my brother more than me. And when I was presented to my parents for the daily viewing, she, and then his stuttering came in and he uh, couldn't continue. And so one of the kinesthetic techniques that Logan had said that when this comes on, try to sing it. And I haven't practiced this, I wasn't going to do it, but he sang at the Swanee River and he goes on uh, to explain, she pinched me so I'd cry and be sent away far, far away. And then he resumes the story in his regular voice. He said it took three years uh, for my parents to notice that it, of course, uh, left problems in my stomach, uh, which persist still. That brief breakthrough, that that testimony was was a breakthrough. And when uh, Bertie is coronated as King George VI of England, he is able to say, I found my voice. And uh, Logue affirms him saying, you're the bravest man I know, and you'll make a bloody good king. But about the climax of the film, when Hitler's troops are marching across Europe and threatening England and King George VI knows he has to give uh, the speech of his life, he comes into the studio and Logue is with him as he always was with him uh, during his speeches. And he's trying to encourage him and he says, you know, your father isn't here now. He says, yes, yes, he is. He's here. He's on the shilling I just gave you. And uh, Logue, in a great speech, sees an opening to re-narrate, to give a new story, to give a new identity. And he says, looking at the shilling, well, it's easy enough to give away. You don't have to carry him around in your pocket or, or your brother. You don't need to be afraid of the things you were afraid of when you were five years old. What Logue was doing is giving a new story, a new identity. That's what we're being given in Jesus Christ. Achieving stewardship health is given to us through a radical new experience of grace. Look at verses uh, 32 and 33. Does Jesus say, if you sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, then you will inherit, then you will be worthy, then you can enter the kingdom of God? Not at all. He says just exactly the opposite. He says, little flock, you've been given the kingdom. And only if you see you've been given the kingdom, apart from your works, apart from your record, will you then be free to start and to sell and to give all you have in radical ways. We've been privileged to gather this morning around a picture, the picture Christ gave us of our new identities. It speaks in so many ways. It speaks that we have been washed in the blood of Christ, that we have a new birth, the only birth which finally and eternally counts in him that we are enveloped. In him we live and move and have our being. And that by his grace we can can share in the benefits of his death and of his resurrected and raised life. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. In that economic poverty, 
he is giving us a picture of his great grace on the cross. He lost his power. He gave up his glory. He lost his relationship with the Father. He lost the ultimate treasure. He liquidated everything for we who are poor. Why? To pay for our sins on the cross. You have been treasured by Christ. You have been treasured by an everlasting love. Make him your treasure. See how he treasured you. See that, and then you will be free from money blindness and money sickness, and until then you will be bound, period. Let me just point out, last week we talked about worship. It's worship where we're trained in this, worship which gives us a new identity. It's worship which tells us our life. I have ten more minutes. Let me summarize it in 60 seconds. Look at the magnificent verse. Uh, there are, when we are generous with what we have, when we are worry-free with it, we worship God. And in this text, it gives us five dimensions. Let's just look at them. First, when we are generous and worry-free, we worship God as our shepherd. Do not be afraid, little flock. It hearkens Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I will not lack anything I really need. Second, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father. When we are generous with what we have been given and when we are worry-free with it, we honor and we worship God, not only as shepherd, but as father. He cares for us. He loves us. He looks over us. Thirdly, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We worship him as shepherd and as father, and when we are free with our possessions and worry-free about them, we honor him as king. The one who not only loves, the one who not only provides a shepherd, but the one who is, has sovereign a power and authority to do that. Fourthly, we worship a God who is generous. Don't be afraid of how free and generous God is. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Notice he gives you the kingdom. He doesn't ask us to be tenants. He doesn't ask us to pay rent as if we could. God is generous and free with his bounty. And when we worship God with glad and generous and happy hearts, we reflect a God who is generous and who is joyful. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. If we treasure God in those ways, if we are fearless, if we value him, and if we are generous, it is God's glorious name that will be worshipped. Living and holy God, we thank you for the blessing it is to us to account ways in which we can return, be responsible, and be responsive to your great love, your great grace, your great election in Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the 12th chapter of Luke and the ways in which it shows Light showers light upon our darkness and blindness. May we honor you, not by being blind, but being on guard, being aware, and being free. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.